Welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us this year as we venture into Valeriand with the great heroes of the Elder Days and do battle with the Dark Lord Morgoth. We hope you enjoy our discussion of the Silmarillion. as well. First of all, the, I think this is the first time I've come back to the Val Quenta after really getting familiarized with all Tolkien's ideas. Anyways, it was great because it wasn't like super confusing and 17 different names for one person. Um, <laughs> it was it was more like coming back to an old friend. So that was really, really cool. Um, just like, whoa, I actually know these people and I can pick up tiny details. And then it really struck me the order that he introduced the Valar, um, because he could have done it in a more orderly way, and he chose not to, which is interesting. Um, like instead of everyone has like a counterpart, uh, either it's their spouse or Olmo, and then Nienna are alone, um, but they're not put side by side. Olmo's put third or whatever, and then Nienna's near the end. Why aren't they side by side? Interesting. Uh, the thing that really stuck out to me was that this was so much easier to read than the Book of Lost Tales version. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, was that long. Um, yeah. And I didn't fall asleep during this one. So <laughs> these are both positives. I think, I think you did good work paring this one down a little bit. Nice. There were a lot of things I liked and that I want to talk about. But one thing that I noticed that I haven't noticed before is that it doesn't ever actually state that Varda and Manwe are married or romantic partners in any way. Like, I always just assumed that was in there. It's not. And it sticks out because it is explicitly stated that Yavanna is the spouse of Aule, and that Nessa is the spouse of Tolkienus, and that Este is the spouse of Lorien. I think that's all of the couples. Um, like, those are all very explicitly stated. Um, with marriage terminology. But for Varda and Manwe, it just says that they're always together, um, that she came out of the void to rescue him, and they're just always together. They live together. So I thought that was really interesting, and my headcanon is that they are just in a lifelong, dedicated, platonic relationship. <laughs> so. um, I'm Tristan. Yeah, anyway. Um, 
I noticed, I noticed more this time reading it, the applications of gender, I would say, that it is mentioned how they take on a gender, but it is strongly related to what their area and, I guess, soul is, how they approach things. Um, I just love this whole passage because it's so beautifully written um, and every, it's really um, vivid, and I like that. But the passage that, really, that I really like that's really vivid um, is uh, about Oromes and Oromes Horn. The Malaroma is the name of his great horn, the sound of which is like the echoing of the sun in scarlet, or the sheer lightning cleaving the clouds. Like, just the I'm Alex, if we're still doing that right. Uh, um, I found it funny how Melkor uh, is just slowly becoming more emo as he goes on. It's like, <laughs> I don't like the name Melkor, I'm going to be more off. Just like slowly becoming more childish and having temper tantrums. of which Arda is made because um, there, there's this constant back, seems to be this constant back and forth between Ale and Melkor. The whole crafting people, these people both like crafting, but they approach it in different ways. Um, and Morgoth basically basically wove himself into all of the substance of Arda, like Sauron did with the ring. Middle-earth is Morgoth's reign. So the fact that Aule has lordship over everything that Morgoth's in is very interesting. Hey, kids. Um, I'm Eleanor, for those who don't know me. And I can't really pinpoint something specifically that I love the most about this chapter, but in general, I just really enjoy um, kind of pantheon. I find it fascinating how authors choose to represent the different facets of the world. You can see most fantasy worlds tend to have different aspects of your earth essentially compartmentalized. I think it's really interesting how uh, he decides to pick and choose which are important enough to have a deity representing them. I'm Ariel, and um, I like a little bit about Gandalf, or Aloran, um, and how he, he learned pity and patience from Nienna. And that pity and patience is what ultimately he taught to Frodo, which ultimately saved the entirety of Middle-earth. So that was pretty cool. And it's just like a throwaway line. So. Wait, Ariel, what do you mean? What? 
Proto doesn't know anyone named Delorean. What are you talking about? <laughs> right, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Uh, uh, I'm Jordan, the two, well, the, the passages that stuck up to me was actually two that are right back to back. It, well, first is Nienna, and then followed up with Tolkis, which I find hilarious, because it's like, yeah, we'll go, yeah, like, all the, especially since all the previous, like, before Tolkis, all the previous ones are, like, the mightiest and the most, like, wise, and they're all talking about, you know, how... Where, where their kind of wisdom comes from. I think you get Tolkis, and it's like, he is no avail of a counselor. <laughs> He's just a wrestler, uh, you know, laughing all the time. I mean, Tolkis is amazing. I, I love Tolkis. I just really kind of switch from, you know, we get, you know, Nieto wisdom. Crying, yeah, crying and talking to all the, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, dead elves in Nandos. Um, and then you get focus. Hi, I'm gonna go wrestle Melkor for fun. <laughs> Hi, I'm Thor. I um I hunt I hunt giants. <laughs> uh, I'm Nick. Um, pretty much anything that I could say has already been said, but this I really enjoy the the flavor and the variety of the Valor. Just I, I I really enjoy sort of pantheons and fiction, and uh, just like the, all, all of these personalities are so unique. Um, and then, you know, like, like you know, Tolkien is sort of the laughing, you know, sort of happy-go-lucky wrestler, just venturing through Middle Earth, and you know, like Orome, you know, like sort of the, the great hunter, terrible in wrath. And I took special interest in Orome because uh, because I'm interested in the blue wizards, and the blue wizards are. My hour of him, so it, uh, that was really cool to read about him. And uh, and then, you know, name dropping Lauren is always really fun. So. characters have characteristics, they have attributes, but 
they don't have character, they don't have quirks, they're not fun, they're not entertaining, and you never see them as rude and not present. So I think that, that like, the, the, the influence from mythology is there, but I hate the influences that he actually took and used. Like, there's so much fun you could have had with having gods in the world, but you just said, the gods aren't there, it's fine. They don't need to be there, they don't exist. Um, and I think that's boring. Um, what I do like, which I like the idea of the dynamic, is it describes Manling as being like Belfort's brother. And I always think to like any show or movie from the 80s where like you have the older brother who's like rebellious, angry, and angsty teen. Maybe the younger brother who's like 11 or 12 who's like joyous and happy and like idealistic. And he's like, why is my big brother such a shit? Like they <laughs> even stranger things with the main character and his older sister, like you know, the older sibling who was trying to rebel and like, why is that such a shit? Come on. These two are exchanging glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Can confirm. Um, well, Nianna uh, is my favorite. And so I'm looking forward to talking about her. And I love the last sentence. For the map years, he rose like a shadow of Morgoth and broke his malice and walked behind him on the same ruinous path down to the void. Cool. All right. Um, wow. Lots. Lots to talk about. I do have uh, the only time you ever get a handout is when you talk about the Battle Club. Amazing. I know. I know. Yeah. So you can keep this for as long as you need it or not. Unfortunately, this probably would probably be more effective to have a handout when we start talking about the Battle Oh, but that's yeah. the only that would be so already, And that's already in the book. So anyway, this is just that's just a little thing to, for the, the main ones to keep them straight in your head. Okay, so one question I guess, and uh, I'm gonna let Tolkien help me here because he actually writes a lot about the Valar in his letters. And that is what exactly are we talking about here when we're talking who are these, or what are these things? Anyone want to take a, yeah, Josh? They're, they're sort of a cross between archangels and Greek or Norse gods. Okay. <coughs> okay, great. Well, you want to <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I mean, Tolkien, Tolkien uh, I mean, sometimes they're called powers, sometimes they're called gods, sometimes they're called, I don't think he ever calls them angels, angelic although he does powers. call them angelic, right? Mm -hmm. But angelic, I think he means that in the strict sense of the word, as in messenger, not as angels that you see in calendars, and uh, because he, he, he's trying to avoid, uh, I think, Christianizing them too much. So, um, who is Gabriel? So, in here, so this is one letter where he says uh, the immediate authorities are the Valar, in bracket, the powers or authorities, the gods, again in quotes, but they are only created spirits of high angelic order, we should say, with their lesser, with their attendant lesser angel, okay, so there's that word again. 
therefore, but not worshipful, and though potently subcreative, and this is important, and resident on earth to which they are bound by love, having assisted in its making and ordering, they cannot by their own will alter any fundamental provision. So they are sub-creations of Olivetar. If you know, everyone's familiar with the idea of sub-creation in Tolkien. Right? And, and the Valars are subsequently sub-creators. Right? When they sort of form right? so So the Valar become a kind of uh, illustration of Tolkien's understanding of sub-creation. Right? Uh, one way, he, he has another letter where he talks about um, when he talks about the Aynalindale and the Valar, it's like an artist who has an image in her head of what she's going to draw, right? Um, but it's but it doesn't become like once she it, it, it's just an image until she starts drawing it, right? And so and then the Valar, in some weird way, sort of enter into the drawing. Kind of like um, Simon. <laughs> Say more about that. Right? Yeah, this little, this little, this little kid named Simon used to draw things in chalk, and then he, you know, he entered the drawing school of Olo Fucking Gabriel. So, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. What else can I say about that? What was he doing? Uh, maybe that's all I'll say. Okay, that, 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 we don't have to say that. We won't talk about that. Okay, so we'll just start going through uh, just individual characters. So uh, we can start with Monway and Barda. Actually, Sophia, I like what you said there. You're right. I've never noticed that before that, that Barda is not described as a spouse. Yeah. They're just common law partners. In the Book of Lost Tales, they do have children, but in this version, he dropped that idea. Just spouses slash partners. The children have. Nobody thinks children in this version. Right. Yeah. 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 So. All right. Well, you know how I am composing a long oral thesis about the use of senses in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, one of the main points is that sight and hearing are privileged as good senses. Yeah. Um. Whereas, like, smell, for example, is not. Mm -hmm. um, so this is just just one of my points. Right. Is the fact that um, uh, Varda and Manwe will go on to Nicotil. And when Varda is with Manwe, he has amazing sight. And then when Manwe is with Varda, she has amazing hearing. So, again, we have, like, the most powerful... Valar are strongly associated with sight and hearing. Right. And also, so is everybody who is good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but sight gets twisted. Can be twisted. Yes. Right? Yes. But it, they're powerful. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, Kara? Um, I really like kind of the Leon Yeah. 
Okay, uh, Josh? I, I'm over at this point. I've always been of the opinion that um, sight is a good sense, while hearing is more of an evil sense, because um, if you see something for yourself, you know it's true, but if you're just hearing it, you can be deceived more easily. And when Sam puts on the ring at Thunder, his sight is basically, it's like a blurry, but his hearing is drastically increased. You'll have to wait for my essay to come out and then I'll fight you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping to hear something not traditional, which privileges sight. Right? Sight is the, I mean, the, the eyes that win on the soul, right? You heard that phrase? I mean, that's right out of play. Your eyes can deceive you, don't trust them. There's that as well. Yeah. Yeah, Sophia? I also love the fact, I also love the, like, introduction of Varda. Um, actually, I love the second part of the introduction of Varda, or of Varda. Like, once we've got past the, like, obligatory beauty description, because, yes, of course she's beautiful. We know that. Um, <laughs> we get to, yes, shockingly, we get, we get to, um, out of the deeps of Ea, she came to the aid of Manwe from Melkor she knew from before the making of the music and rejected him, and he hated her and feared her more than all others whom Eru made. So despite the fact that she is, like, rarely in direct opposition with him, you get this idea that he's absolutely terrified of her, which is thematically perfect in terms of, like, the fact that you can everybody think... Invokes her name. Yeah, everybody invokes her name. Um, and there's the file of Galadriel, and she puts this sickle above right. the north and all of that, and it's just... It's just cool. I like it. I like that she's terrifying. I like it when women are terrifying in Tolkien, although I wish they, you could maybe sometimes do it without also being the most beautiful person in the world. So. Mm -hmm. hey, at least he doesn't try to give a long-winded three-page description of her. They're trying to win. Angolian is not a woman. <laughs> Sheila. Sheila is also not a woman. So, you have this so Tolkien seems to have, I don't want to say something like something too much, but Tolkien seems to have a sort of complementarian view of gender, right? That you have male and female have certain roles that they fulfill together, uh, which is problematic, right? Because it assumes that Varda, for example, could not be king, right? That that's Madhuay's role. Uh, so, you know, that, I think that would be a fair critique. Um, but it's also, I think, fair to say that complementarian is important Tolkien in that there is a kind of cooperative uh, working together, right? Uh, which is where when we get to Ulmo and we get to Alwing and we get to Melkor, right, we can start comparing because they all have something really similar and that is they are isolation, isolation, so they're isolated. Yet they all don't go down the same path, right? So it's not being alone per se that's the issue. And there seems to be another issue with Melkor, right? Besides just being alone. Yeah, Tristan. Um, Don't do that to me. <laughs> just. I'm sure I got it right. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, I would just say that it seems that Varda doesn't desire to be king. Right. There's no indication of that. Yeah. Um, and I think that might be part of the reason. That within Tolkien's world, she's portrayed as female. Is that more frequently, 
almost exclusively, it is male characters who have desires of power. And that that is, in some ways, one of the more defining features of male characters. Chris? Um, okay, Sophia? <laughs> okay. Um, the, like, the part where I find the, like, gender complementarity of the Valar to be, like, the most obvious is the fact that like the women are all gentle and beautiful um and even like i will point out that even when they are not fully gentle like even though varda can inspire terror and even though yavanna is like yeah i want my my trees to kill dwarves like even when they're not completely gentle they are still in defensive or passive roles compared to the men not all of the men but like you don't get um it's kind of like it's kind of like the galadriel issue um the galadriel issue is that galadriel is an immensely powerful <coughs> person however her power is defensive and her power is preservationist as opposed to the power of say gandalf who takes a lot more direct action um and yes, you have you have preservationist male characters too. The issue comes when the male characters are allowed more variety than the female characters, while the female characters are almost all very, very similar. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the issues with the Valars, that the female Valar are almost all very similar. Whereas if you compare that to real world pantheons, you will have that contrast between like Hestia, who is very passive and like protects the hearth, and Athena, who is very active, and if you hurt her, she will run you over with her battle chariot. <laughs> you don't have that counterpoint in Tolkien's Valar. You don't have that warlike woman god. Like even Freya, right? Freya is very warlike and actively violent, whereas with Tolkien, that sort of like warlike like warlike attribute seems to be fundamentally against what he views as female traits which again is why i think that the valar who are not warlike chose to be female because tolkien sees that as a female thing all right that was a long rant sorry guys <laughs> yeah i'm really curious about a real world pantheon as opposed to a oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah that makes no sense <laughs>
real world pantheon. <laughs> a Romani is the direct counterpart of almost like verbatim for um, Artemis. Yeah. But I, I think, I don't think it's malicious. I just don't think it even occurred to Tolkien that a woman could be a huntress and could be a warrior. I don't think it even occurs to him, really. And you, you can see there's a lot of, you can almost map a lot of his deities to Greek, and he's made a very conscious choice to take Artemis and give her counterpart male gender, um, which is a little disappointing, but you know. Um, and I do also agree that the variety is kind of reduced. I mean, if you just look at the, the zones, the females are almost limited to emotions, like the weaver, the gentle, the lumpy mourns, or kind of soft variations of nature, whereas there is a lot more variation in the personality and the domains of the male star. So yeah, I think he really kind of comes to like him. I'm just going, I don't see any more hands here anymore, so Alex? Just going off of what Sophia said as well, like uh, how the men or like the female were fast, when I was reading the Valentine's Day, they were all the pairs, like all the spouse uh, couples and all that, always, it was always the men who were introduced first uh, rather than the female. And I, I found that very deliberate, <clears throat> even if the female might have been considered more powerful in some way. Just interesting. Okay, Sarah? Um. Something up to also kind of build up what Sophia was saying, but on a different track. Um, less about the genders, more about the characterizations of the Valar. Um, realistically, actually, there aren't very many more like Valar. Um, like, you don't have really um, kind of character. You don't, you, you don't really have a Valar that has a lot of bloodlust. The closest you get to a very warlike Valar is Tulkas. And Telkis doesn't really want to kill people, he just really likes competition. Um, so he likes to wrestle people and have feats of strength, but even Telkis, like, really come, really, he only wants to fight one person. Um, whereas in other pantheons, you have, like, Ares. <laughs> right? You've got Ares, Ares, like, is a war god, he wants to kill people. It's a, it's, it's a different distinction, which is interesting altogether because you have lots of characters. Um, who are builders and creators, and lots of characters who are um, very quiet characters. Like even like Mandos is a god of death, just kind of like chills and occasionally, like occasionally he pronounces doom on people, but most of them just hangs around and they're like death. And Morian is act is, is a, a, actively creating like a, a haven. Um, so I, th I think that's interesting. You don't have very like you don't really have Valar who want to go to war who are. Um, I would argue against some of the things that you said, Sophia, insofar as the female Valar having less um, differences between them than the male. And I would say that they have, I would say that they have as many differences, that they just show up a lot less. So you get people like Nessa being as different from Nienna, I would say, as Tolkas is from Manwe. But you never hear about Nessa again. Um, not entirely true, but pretty much. Nessa plays a very minor role, and I think that is more where the differences lie than in the specific characterizations of them. And part of that goes back to Chris's point, where a lot of them don't have a whole lot of character. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it's not 
so much that they're not <clears throat> different as much as it is that they have, like, as that they're all peaceful. But, yeah, I also, in relation to your point, I also do really like how Tolkien does the gods in general and what he chooses <coughs> to have gods for. Like, we haven't gotten to Vienna, which is why I'm not, like, appreciating Vienna yet. But, um, yeah, like, he does... And I do like how he takes out, like, all of the warlike, or most of the warlike aspects of gods, right? And nobody actually represents battle lust. Um, that being said, like, I think um, uh, my point is also in terms of, like, iconography, and not necessarily saying that any of the Valar are particularly violent, but you can still draw a bit of a difference between, like, Tulkis fights, um, Ulmo has a trident, um, Orme hunts and kills monsters, um, and I think that's it, whereas, um, so I think that's all of them, but, so you don't have a lot of warlike Valar, but nevertheless you have zero female Valar who are ever depicted with a weapon, ever. So I think that is a difference. I'm not saying that means they're not powerful, just that there's a difference in power and how they show power. So, so I think if I can say a couple things, this is all really good. I think that um, I was thinking as we were talking back to sort of the original point of that, or one of the things I said about how Valar are Subcreators, and I think one one question that would be interesting is to compare because obviously Tolkien is pulling from different mythologies, and I actually think he is very deliberately uh, changing gender roles according to his own view of how things should be. So yeah, for him, so he he know he's very aware of artists, right, and what artists does, and for whatever reason he was grown up in a tradition that said, well, that's not how women should be, therefore. But, but also just more broadly, right? And this may speak to why you don't have uh, warlike or right. And that is, um, I guess, two things. One is generally in pantheons in mythology, the reason for the pantheon is to sort of explain things, right? So. You know, oh, there's a big thunderstorm that scares my kids and causes damage because of light, whatever. Why is that? Right? We don't know anything about like a hot air, cold air, and all that kind of stuff, right? But maybe it sounds like someone's yelling at me. So maybe there's Thor and whatever, right? And so so one of the questions then is, well, why is there violence? Why do people hate each other? Why do they, right? Okay, you have Ares and Strife and Eris, right? These people that cause conflict. Gods of I'm not sure Tolkien is as interested in that as much as he is interested in sub-creation, right? So, so his Valor are primarily sub-creators before they are sort of <coughs> anything else, right? So, so Yavanna, for example, yeah, okay, the female characters do tend to be more passive, yet Yavanna is the grower, right? She makes things grow, which is a quite quite an active role, right? Um, but you don't have uh, 
you, yeah, you don't have the same equivalence. So Theatris, and of course, it's cleaned up, right? Which we joked about before, right? Like none of the, the nasty behavior that you get in the other campaigns going on, they come out of that one, right? They're respectable, no comments. <laughs> they are not incestuous. Or <laughs> rapey. <laughs> takes on that, that role, right? Um, but also, I think, again, going back to your point and Chris's point about how they're so aloof, right, is, again, they are, they're, they're, the authority of the Valar is somehow different than the authority of other mythological champions. And I think it goes back again to the fact that the difference between Tolkien's pantheon and other Greek mythological pantheons, is that Tolkien's, the authority of Tolkien's pantheon is derivative, right? For, for Greek mythology, the, as far as I know in Norse mythology, I can be corrected on this, the power stops at the pantheon. Like there's nothing higher than the pantheon in Greek mythology, right? Zeus is the high, okay, you go to the Titans in the movie. There were a couple of deities that he was sort of like afraid of, but yeah, it's like. But, but generally, he's, yeah, he's the number one He's the, the quote-unquote right? Whereas the Valar are actually under the authority of someone else, right? And so I think that's one reason why you don't see them getting so involved in the world, because I don't think they are actually able to affect, like Tolkien says in this letter, they can't sort of change the fundamentals of, of the world. Right? They're sub-creators, not creators, right? So their power is very limited. And I think that's one of the reasons you don't see them Interfering the way you see other pantheons interfering. That'd be my guess. So, yeah, I'll see you then. Yeah, I wanted to kind of like go back to what you were saying about how like there isn't really a war about it. And what I think is really interesting is that while Melkor doesn't represent the act of war, he represents all of the causes. So, the pride, the greed, the selfishness, he represents the causes. And I think it's interesting that like the Greeks kind of looked at like the symptoms and Tolkien's looking at the cause. I think mean, that's what Ah, yep, nice. Sarah Lynn? Okay. Uh, Alex? It was kind of covered, but I was going to say, like, you keep talking about, like, all the gods are kind of crafting and just peaceful, but Malfour is obviously, like, he's in for domination and greed and wants to, he wants to control the land of men, which obviously requires war and violence. Yeah, I just, 
Sarah? Um, to kind of look at that idea of like why the Valar do or don't interfere in the world, um, Sophia keeps telling me that Manwe just can't conceive of how evil Melkor is, and that's why she doesn't ever attack him. Um, but I'm looking right now at, like, it says that Manwe is dearest to Iluvatar and understands most clearly his purposes, um, which is also an interesting perspective because it, it, Manwe then is closest to the heart of, of, of Iluvatar and is really understanding um, his overarching idea for the world and, his, uh, and that, that plan right, and that plan for the end of the world as well, um, then it would make sense, right, for him to be like, we have to wait, we have to wait, we have to wait, um, because there's, because he's got a broader understanding of a purpose, whereas the rest of the Valar being further from him, from Iluvatar, don't have as much of an understanding of purpose. That's interesting, because I want to move on to Umo soon, and Umo is, is unique also, because he seems to have understood the song that or something. So it's interesting to compare Manwe and Umo in, in that language, right? But I do think also, you're, you're right, I think, but also I think because, because their authority is derivative, they are, in a sense, a council of equals, right? So there's a sense where I don't think Manwe actually has any authority over Melkor or over any of the other Valar in, in any... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? In a kind of functional sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's he's king, right? But I think that that kingness is related to your point, which is he's king because he best knows sort of the plan. But not king in the sense of, oh, I'm gonna determine how you do your thing, and I'm gonna you go along, I'm gonna come. There doesn't in fact when we get to Ale and Yvan, it's really interesting because there's a conflict between Yavana and Manwe. And it's interesting how that's resolved, right? So I think that part of the reason that Manwe doesn't deal with Melkor is, yes, maybe he doesn't quite get how bad Melkor is, but I also think that he doesn't actually have the kind of authority that would allow him to stomp on, on Melkor, maybe, perhaps. Manwe is king over the evils of the power. What's that? <laughs> this is, okay, this is from the fan fiction that we read. Oh. That, like, that, like, just summarizes, basically like snarky <coughs> summarizes oh, yeah. the Silmarillion. Um, so one of one of their lines is just like, Manoe is king over the evils of the Valar. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> yes. Something, something like that, perhaps. Yeah. Okay, we're going to go down the line, and we're going to go to Joseph. Welcome. Uh, the one thing about Manoe is he's the Valar Pope. Because technically the Pope is like the first among equals, but really he's just like the king. Right. So yeah, the moment I was reading, like, no, this is not my place, and he's everything. I'm like, no, he's just like the Pope of the Valar. Nice. And he's got the tallest hat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Garrison. Yeah. Uh, sort of, sort of tying back to what Chris was going to. Yeah. Right. Sort of tying back to what he said about the people who want power versus the people who should have power. This sort of like how I see the difference between Manway and Melkor. Because like Melkor is like the one who wants power and is going getting it, you know, <coughs> causing war and strength to get that power. Whereas Manway, like everybody said, is he's the first among equals. He's in charge because, you know, he didn't go for that power. He's just given that power by the root time. Yeah, I mean Chris isn't here to defend himself. But I, I push back a little bit on his uh, his 
position that in the Lord of the Rings, the people who don't want power are the ones who get it. At least, at least the Eric, the book version of Aragorn, he's very much aware that he's king, and he has no, he's not hesitant about it. Right? The movie he's a little more wishy-washy, but so he's much more, there's much more depth in the character. In the books, he's just, I know I'm going to be king. I'm going to be king. Like he's just absolutely black in those terms where he, there's not that much conflict. <laughs> I think the movie's pretty flat actually, but but I think anyway, but that's that's a debate for another time. But but I do think that you do have a sense in I'm not sure you can say that the only people who are in power are the ones who or legitimate power are is for people who don't really want it. I think it's more complex than that, although there are very interesting. Some would feel like Melkor, like the true evil, is reflected in searching for power. Oh yeah, for sure. Expense, as opposed to just like acknowledging the power and taking the power when you just when you were called upon. And it's not just power; it's dominance, and there's a difference, right? Uh, Sarah Lynn. Yeah, I was saying that Tolkien likely has rural and kingship isn't power; it's just to say it's dominion. Right. Because, um, and I think that's why it is. Not an idiot. Um, he's just boring. 
<laughs> I mean, the thing is, I think I, when, I, when I read that, when I read the whole thing about him understanding the um, the purpose or the the mind of Illuminor, what what I almost think of is that Manley is almost, in some sense, the a valor of mercy. Like he understands the purposes of what the valor should be. He understands where where <laughs> what Melkor should have been. So that's why he wants to give him the chances. Melkor gets later on, um, but I, I was thinking of that in kind of in terms of kind of the big three of the Valar, Matle, Olmo, and uh, Mandos. Um, seems you know that name. Uh, but like it's almost that you know uh, Manley understands the kind of purposes of the Valar. Olmo understands the purposes of Ea, the, the world as a whole, like destiny. But Mando and Mandos is the one kind of of the consequences of actions. He, right, he, he is the one who says this has happened, and now you know you cannot return or whatever. Like he, like whatever people do, he sets that in stone and says this is how it will be from now on. Which I find kind of a, an interesting kind of yeah, tripod, I guess. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, okay, Ulmo. Okay, Ulmo. Yes, uh, Sophia. Ulmo is the Vala who feels the most fey, and it's because he is the least changed from the Book of Lost Tales. Right. He is the most similar to his iteration in Book of Lost Tales. And I think it helps that Tolkien came up with a lot of details about him in Book of Lost Tales and kept a bunch of those, like he couldn't throw them out, like the name of his shell horn, right? Yeah. Like the, the Ulamori. Ulamori is such a um, and like the effect that his voice has, um, and yeah, it's interesting. It's just those couple details and also that sort of unpredictable nature, like, right? Sometimes you'll just come in and make music. So he's got this unpredictability and this interaction with humanity that most of the other Valar don't have, yeah. which gives him like a wilder, more fey aspect, just slightly, just in comparison to the rest of them. Right. Um, which is super interesting, and also, yeah, like he's changed the least from Book of Lost Tales. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, we'll go around that line. Um, so I had two kind of things. Um, kind of building off of the Ulamuri, that's so cool. Um, it says like two lines down. Um, for all, yeah, but mostly Ulmo speaks to those who dwell in Middle Earth with voices that are heard only as the music of water. For all seas, lakes, rivers, fountains, and springs are in his government. Anyway, yeah. it's like, <laughs> that's really, really cool. That we like, we have this idea of the Valar being over there and kind of aloof from the goings on of Middle Earth. Um, but clearly that's not entirely the case. Like the very fabric of the world is purposeful in Tolkien. Um, like there's this intention running through water and earth. Um, very much drawing off of um, G.K. Chesterton type of type of ideas, which really inspired Tolkien a lot. Um, yeah, because we're used to like uh, the laws of science. Everything is cause and effect, cause and effect. It just happened this way. But Tolkien's universe is like, no, water has intention, which is really cool. And then I have a question, which we may or may not answer. And that's like, if that's the case, what type of 
power do these um do the Valar have over their domain? Like we say that Varda's power is in light. Um, and we say that um, yeah, Aule's power is in the earth and in the substances that make up Arda. Like what type of power is that? Are they just good with working with it? Or is it like somehow tied to them? Just like Mm. That's a great question. Uh, yeah, um, I want to answer what I have a comment what he said, but I also have something that's about Omar himself. Uh, kind of hedging off what you said, Sophia, it's interesting that Omar is like the least changed. There is one major change, though. He lost his spouse. Because Uinen. Oh, he used to be actually him. married to Uinen? Yeah. Oh, okay. That used to be his spouse. What's super interesting, though, is you can kind of set up all the Vala and the Valier, at least the ones that are paired, into kind of like a set of dualities. And so it's really interesting that Olmo doesn't have a duality that kind of like conceptualizes that relationship, right? It's interesting that Nien is also the only other one. And I'm kind of curious as to why, why specifically Tolkien set up, because there's like a huge change of the Vala from Book of Lost Tales to now. Yeah. And one of those big things is now they're organized in like a set of dualities, right? And why did he choose that specifically for Ulmo and Nien? Right? Mostly Ulmo, because like water is one of those things that has like a massive set of dualities in like traditional mythology that he doesn't actually expand upon. And did you want to take a stab at Ryan's question? Yeah, it's interesting because the way that a lot of the battle, especially Ulmo, because Ulmo is described almost as if he's like a wave coming to shore. I think where it is, where he's like foam uh, crested. Yeah, yeah. So I don't. I think it's almost intentionally blurry how like they're not necessarily like gods in the traditional sense of like oh they're like human forms and they have aspects of them they can work with elements. I think it's a little more like they exist partly as that and partly as like the aspect of the sea coming alive. Because they like they take form, right? They yeah, take yeah. a body occasionally. There's like a fluid or something like appearing like an Italian or like a, an elf, and then like also appearing as their own. Right, because Yvonne says can just as easily appear as a tree. Yeah, yeah. A tree, right? Like a yeah. Uh, one other thing that Lumo loses, I think, is his seed car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also uh, his stone shoes. Just the point oh, yeah. uh, Sarah Lynn? Say that the spirit of Omo runs in all the veins of the world, with the rivers and the cities and creeks and stuff. It's the 
sustain this world and then like sustain it and keep it alive. Olam is everywhere in it. Also, he's closest to modeling in friendship before Valinor's made, but now he doesn't even go to councils very much unless it's a really big deal. So I can kind of get that idea of like friends who have lived far away from each other and only see each other occasionally. They get together again and they're like, yeah, 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 and then everything is just normal yeah. like they are, and then they go away. Yeah. Why do you put yourself on top of a mountain? No, I don't like hikes. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting too. This goes back to Joseph's question about the duality, right? How um, Ulmo of all the Valar are most embedded in the earth, right? And and the only it doesn't say the only one that did not abandon, or or doesn't say the only one, but but Ulmo loves both elves and men and never abandoned them, not even when they lay under the wrath of the Valar. So why isn't Ulmo the one that they call to rather than Bart? It would, would be a question that I would ask, right? And yet, uh, maybe it's because Ulmo is fey or more wild or more... But of all the Valar, Ulmo's the one that seems to be not only the closest in the sense of he loves them, but sort of, in a sense, physically the closest, right? Uh, and yet, he's never invoked, he's never... Except, well, he's, he shows up again later in the same morning, but... In Lord of the Rings, he's certainly never evoked or even hinted at compared to Arda, right? So, yeah, Nick? Well, I, I find it interesting how um, sort of in this kind of this eternal conflict that he sort of sets up that, you know, Morgoth is always associated with darkness and, and sort of him and Sauron with like sort of fire, like destructive sort of power. And Ulmo is kind of set up to be, you know, he's one of the few Valar who are actively kind of engaging against him because, like it says, you know, Orme kind of ventures through the wide lands, you know, killing evil creatures and pushed by the darkness, but Ulmo is sort of set up to be the one who is always kind of working against the dark powers, and this kind of relates to, you know, like previously we've, in Hobbit Murder Rings, we talked about sort of water, like sort of running water versus like still water, like, you know, like the lakes where the watcher in the water, the one with Smaug's corpse, the one that's sort of considered, like, people don't go there, and sort of considered kind of, you know, fey or like dark or like cursed, whereas, uh, and then, like in Fellowship, when you know the, the Nazgul are kind of hesitant to cross the water, it, so like I think Ulmo is sort of brought up, like yeah. just indirectly, just because of the influence of water as opposed to sort of destructive fire and darkness. Yeah. But even though he's sort of, and then as we say later, sort of two of, um, it, it's just uh, it, it's interesting how kind of water and like Ulmo is set up to be sort of the main kind of opposing force to the sort of darkness and, and fire. Who is the Ring of Water? Elrond or because he's the one who makes the flood Right. Uh, Jordan? Um, on your question about why why elves worship, or I, I was noticing that the, the elves seem to actually revere the, the women. Oh, you know, the female Valar much more than the men. Like, the, like except with the exception of Owlay to the Noldor, like, they don't really revere, like, or the, the males just exist to the elves, whereas they seem to have much more of a relationship, or they learn, like, because especially since the women have a lot more of the living things, and the, the trees, and they, they act on them more than like, the dancing, yeah. <laughs> where the elves learn dancing. Yeah, that's it. I'm not sure, like, so the vanyard, when we use the vanyard, they go to mom, right? Yeah. And the uh, Doldor, of course, are uh, the Teleri, the Umu, like, like 
not sure about that, but but it is interesting that I mean, at least it doesn't seem to have the same kind of veneration that he has. I was wondering if Elmo is maybe just like he always calls to them. He's much more like he only does so with a purpose, mm. kind of. Yeah. You know, he shows up when he needs to, or very, very subtly. Right. He, not. Yeah. They don't. They don't ask favors of Elmo. Elmo comes to them if he needs to. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Joseph. I think what's interesting is that sort of sense of like he calls, but also Elmo is kind of the best conceptualization among the Valar of the Sublime, right? He's I might that might be part of the reason why like he's unpaired. But if you think about it, there is this sort of parallel that is very different from the rest of the Valar of how Elmo kind of draws people out of their normal element into like a new thing, right? He constantly kind of invokes a sense of the other to the elves. And yeah, that comes partly from like the sway aspect in uh, Book of Lost Days. It's just, it's interesting that he's never actually kind of invoked or ever called upon, even though he does represent the sublime, because that's a huge thing in a lot of like uh, traditional mythologies of like, if this thing conceptualizes the sublime, they're everywhere. They're kind of like this motif, not just in like ritual, but also in like temple building, in like what you would put in charms in your house and such. And yeah, it there's a very deliberate choice here by Tolkien to kind of not have the sublime be invoked directly. Okay, Sarah. Lynn? Um, so I I mentioned that like We need help. <laughs> like, there's a sense that it's parallel and treacherous, kind of. Not and the oceans themselves, they don't entirely trust, so they're drawn to it, towards it. But there's a sense that it's, you get the same sense of like dreams and like a calling and stuff like that, but it's still, yeah, there's an ill sweetness to it. So I don't yeah, oh no, I just think that the reason that the elves are more drawn to Varya in particular is because they woke up under the stars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and right, so Varda Varda is um, of the light. So that's the that's that that's Tolkien's most powerful motif. Mm-hmm. Right? So one, the elves are the people of the stars in the first place, and Varda is the lady of the stars, and two, she's also of light, and that's Tolkien's most powerful motif. So to call on Varda as um, as having the power of light when you're in difficult times, right, when you're facing Morgoth or Sauron or whatever, makes more sense than to call an Ulmo who is pretty great, but, like, doesn't have that whole light motif anymore. Yeah, Robert? Um, I just uh, come in with a fact check moment. Alaron's ring is the ring of air, but it has a blue stone for some reason. It's Galadriel's, that's the ring of water, and it has a white stone for some reason. Oh, some interesting yeah. thing to consider, like what's what's her power of preservation? You know, is that connected to Ulmo somehow? Is that kind of well? She also has a river that protects, right? And and the mirror of Gladiolus is of water. Uh, anyway, I thought that's a good answer. Yeah, Ryan. Um, talking, going back to Ulmo, um, it strikes me. 
that one, he is probably the most powerful of the Valar, just because he's everywhere, constantly knows everything. When he does need to directly intervene, it's pretty scary. Um, it's like, he seems to be more powerful than Manu, but definitely seems proper that Manu is the person among the equals. Um, and because of that reason, and for the other reasons we've been talking about, um, Ulmo really strikes me as most similar in personality to Iluvatar. Um, clearly not like some incarnation of him, not suggesting that at all. Um, but like the way he interacts with the other Valar and with the children of Iluvatar seems to be very similar to the way that Iluvatar himself does, which might also explain why he is alone. Uh, just going back to why the elves um, revere Farda so much is um, she, in, instead of Umo, is that um, she's cited directly as the, the one Valar that, um, that Melkor hates and fears the most, right? And so if you're invoking someone in dark times, who else but your enemy's large enemy in the middle, right? So, like, the, like they. Here as more of a contrast to to evil than than Ulmo, who we talked about as being like he's kind of ambivalent. You know, he he might help you, but also he might like throw you to sea lying, and then your life is screwed. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Okay, that's great. I want to move on. Sorry, but we're going to run out of time. So let's go to Vienna because I don't want to miss her. Uh, this is also one of my favorite paragraphs in all the story. Mightier than Este is Vienna, sister of Iaguri. She dwells alone. She is acquainted with grief and mourns for every wound that Arda has suffered from Marian Melkor. So great was her sorrow as the music unfolded that her song turned to lamentation long before its end, and the sound of mourning was woven into the themes of the world before it. But she does not weep for herself, and those who hearken to her learn pity and endurance and hope. Her halls are west of west upon the borders of the world, and she comes seldom to the city of Alamar where home is glad. She goes rather to the halls of Mandel, which are near to her own, and all those who wait in Mandel's cry to her, for she brings strength to the spirit and turns sorrow to wisdom. The windows of her house look outward from the walls of the world. Quite Someone may correct me on this. But I don't think any other mythology has a Neomantic. That was going to be my point. Sorry, sir. That's okay. Mm. Which, yeah, which is uh, really interesting. Yes, Sarah? It fits so well with Tolkien's own conception of the world, though. Like, even when we started Lost Tales last year, um, that first one that he that, that first poem that we read, right, about the city of the elves, that was that slowly, the older he got, the more you got that motif of everything fading and dying, right? So that idea of, of sorrow um, is really woven into the fabric of how Tolkien thinks of fairy and how Tolkien thinks of, of good things. He always thinks of fading. And so the idea of having a Nienna, someone to mourn for lost things and to mourn for marred things, um, really suits him, I think. So let me just read from another letter uh, where Tolkien writes, I suppose the difference between this myth, which 
and what may be perhaps called Christian mythology is this. In the latter, which is Christian mythology, the fall of man is subsequent to and a consequence, though not a necessary consequence, of the, quote, fall of the angels, a rebellion of created free will at a higher level than man. But it is not clearly held, and in many versions it's not held at all, that this affected the world in its nature. Evil was brought in from outside by Satan. So that's the Augustinian view as well. That evil is a, a parasite in a sense. It's not, it doesn't have its own uh, existence, right? Um, in this myth, similarly, the rebellion of created free will precedes creation of the world, Ea. And Ea has in it sub-creatively introduced evil rebellions, discordant elements of its own nature already when the let it be was spoken. The fall or corruption, therefore, of all things in it and all inhabitants of it was a possibility, if not inevitable. Right? Trees may go back as if no force. Elves may turn into orcs, and if this required the special perverse, perverse of malice of Morgoth, still elves themselves could do evil deeds. Even the good Valar, as an avenue of the world, could at least err, as the great Valar did in their dealings with the elves. Spoiler. Or as the lesser of their kind, as the starry or wizards, could in various ways become self-seeking. And then they got the Aule, which we're going to get to. So that's, that's an interesting difference between the Christianity and Tolkien's knowledge. It would be interesting if we could ask him why he wanted that in there, but he would be brought to think. But you can see how with Lienna, right, that her sorrow for that marring is there almost from the beginning. And it's woven into the very structure of creation itself, right? A kind of sadness that is also beautiful, right? Uh, Robert, and then. Um, I wonder if it just has something to do with how we view the world. Like, you see a lot of, I guess, more modern religions, more about hope than about explaining, you know, why there's bad, necessarily. But I think Tolkien saw a lot of really bad things happen during his lifetime, and he lost a lot of people. So maybe this was a way for him to explain all that and to have, like, this is kind of the way things are, but if we mourn for them, they're not lost forever. You know, they'll come back again, renewed later. And, and hope is a huge theme for right? even even her, right? She turns uh, those who hearken to her learn pity and endurance in hope, right? So hope is also sort of woven into things. Yeah, Ryan. Um, I kind of did want to get try give a suggestion for what Tolkien was thinking here. Um, it strikes me that a big theme of why he chose the characters he did, um, why he gave them the powers they did, um, is a Latin word, decet, decet, um, it is fitting. Um, I'm thinking that one of the creation stories that could have inspired Tolkien here um, is called the Timaeus by Plato. Um, and it's basically this demiurgos, this um, god figure, making the world as good as it possibly could be. The Demiurge chooses to make it a spear. Why? Because that was the most fitting for it. Why did he choose to use this material? Because it was fitting for it. Um, there's some things about triangles, but that's Plato. It's fitting because there's triangles. Um, anyway, and that's this word, Deca. Deca is also very prominent in Christian um, theology. It, why is it this way? Because it should be this way. It just seems to work. Tolkien could have made Nienna an Avenger rather than just a mourner um, and like really whipped 
um, more goth for everything he's done and has hurt her for. Um, but instead, she just moves by well, because it should be that way, and that's gorgeous. And I think that kind of explains what we were talking about earlier about um, why are the women more gentle? Ooh, that that just got really political. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> We um, were not political at any point previously. It's all your fault. <laughs> okay. Um, or why aren't there weapons? Why aren't they, they, they violent? Um, or why is Nian alone and no morals alone? Because, because it's good. Okay. Um, I think Ariel's next. Um, Ariel needs a second. Hang on. I almost have it back. Um, oh yes, yes. Um, the idea of hope being sort of that almost like like there there's sorrow and then hope and pity are kind of within sorrow. And the idea that um, I, I really like how Nina inspires this like endurance in hope because hope comes like if you have the perfect life, you don't hope for anything. Um, <coughs> And hope is really kind of something that is born out of, of recognizing and acknowledging that, yeah, there's something wrong and it needs to be fixed. And this, the hope is sort of the speculative thought that goes before any action. Um, and uh, I, I just also really like the sort of pity and, and from, um, from that sort of sorrow for the world. Not like she's off sort of. Well, she is off in her own corner, but like she, you know, like she is influencing the other valor. They, they always have that in mind that you know there there is um, there is sort of a consequence to what they're doing. And I would say, and I argued this when I was on a panel in Detroit at a conference on, and uh, I talked about seeing truth, how you see truth in a post-truth, so-called post-truth world. Right? I used Tolkien. Like, actually, I, Sophie, I can send what I. Basically, the ant, in Tolkien, the antidote to the twisting of, of one's vision is pity or compassion. That's the end. And it goes all the way back to you, right? So like you said right at the beginning, right? You can trace this idea, starting with Nienna, through Olorin, to Bilbo, to Frodo, to Sam, right? It goes all the way. And that 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 is the sort of foundational virtue that, in fact, saves the world, right? Uh, Bilbo's pity is evoked in all three of the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, Nick? Yeah, well, I was going to say that sort of this whole idea of notion of kind of um, um, pity and, and sort of, um, what's it like, um, kind of like lamenting kind of what has sort of been lost. Like it, it's also sort of related to your children and Lucar because you know, like you said, the, the elves are constantly looking back at what was, what has been lost in, in since the world began. They're always sort of they are they are you know lamenting for sort of the greatness that will never be again. And we all listen to this in men because you know, stuff like the Gondorians are kind of saying they look at where they are now and they're sort of saying, Oh look look at how far we have fallen from how high we began. They have also had that, but they're also able to kind of look forward because there's a whole issue of what happens to men after they die, they're sort of like Wondering what is sort of awaiting them kind of moving forward, and um, it's sort of this. Not, it's related to the idea of you know sort of hope 
because like when Gandalf was talking about the Denthor, he said, oh, so long as you know a blade of grass survives, then we will have succeeded. It's just like, and then you know, with like Gollum, the idea of pitying him and sort of finding the idea of finding that sort of one glimmer of goodness within so much darkness. The idea of enduring against so much like death and despair. Because like you know, Tolkien, like in his lifetime, he lived through two of like the worst conflicts in all of human history. Like just unthinkable amounts of people died and everything, all the amounts of suffering that no one had ever seen before. And it's deeply tied into his worldview, this idea of there is so much death and darkness and misery in our world, and yet sort of we can hope for the future while at the same time remembering and lamenting for what has sort of what has been lost since then. So those two ideas are very much intertwined and they're sort of at the very core of his his work. Yeah, uh, actually, Alex, I think. Uh, it's fine that Corinne just uh, showed up because I was going to mention uh, about like how uh, the, like Nienna is in Melkor kind of somewhere in like a musical sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nienna talks, it's like she's mourning. So, like, if we go back to like before the world was beginning and saying, she would have been singing in like dissonant minor tones rather than like the major beautiful song that everybody else was. Which would be similar to what Melkor does in Melkor. It like the dissonant like anger would be in minor tones as well, like mm. compared to that. So like while they're so similar in that aspect, they're so different in terms of uh, like um stuff like which side they're on. Yeah. But, yeah. Nice. Yeah, Joseph. Kind of going back to the idea, and you mentioned to me there's no mythology with a figure like Nienna. That's because it's not from mythology, it's from Catholicism. Nienna is almost like the Stalbot Mata. Sorry, I can't hear you. The Stalbot Mata. The the Virgin Mary in suffering. And it's interesting that she teaches pity and endurance and hope because it's specifically what the devotion to the Stalbot Mata is about. It's using her dose in Greek and it's about trying to understand what the Greek is about. And trying to, in some way, have a supposed figure to help him through it. Yeah. So, in a really interesting way, and it might be also the reason why almost quite different is this. Even linking back to what you said about he's close to Lucifer, Nienna and Olmo are like they seem to be drawn from this deep sense of Roman Catholicism that Tolkien had, as opposed to kind of translating classical mythology. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, and it. It's probably why they have such different domains compared to the other battle. Sarah? Lynn? It's interesting that, um, like, She wouldn't have started until the second meeting, right? Because she says it is a response to Melkor when she starts the book. So the first theme, perhaps Nienna wasn't even there yet. 
But it's not until the second theme when Melkor starts to interfere, right? That's when she's so she initially responds, right? But then why have Melkor been there since then? I think because maybe maybe because of Melkor, right? <laughs> but, but I'm not sure, right? If, anyway, yeah, uh, Brayden, that's a good point. That's a good point. It's something to think about. But, uh, yeah, it's a point that maybe sort of related to um, that point to that. Um, I mean, I guess on the surface, the, uh, the answer is kind of different than the other Valors in terms of they all contribute, you know, something beautiful to the world, you know, whether it's the wind or the oceans or whatever it is. Um, but it is stressed a number of times how you know sorrow makes things more beautiful. The third and greatest land sort of is uh, filled with sorrow and stuff. So I think it's fair to say that you know even though she kind of on the surface seems different from the other Valar, she's just as much contributing to the beauty of the world. Nice. Yeah. And there's also the like antagonistic aspect, you know, associates that with female, I think, and also mm-hmm. his um, more willful characteristics. All of them seem to female characteristics, and it's interesting that that in and of itself. And that um, often in characters you'll see like pity as the one redeeming character. You just like to see it in Frozen later. Um, and that pity in itself just goes back to her. Uh, okay, Corinne? Uh, I mean, Sarah Lynn and Brayden actually covered a lot of what I was going to say on there, but I think sort of the, when it talks about like the purpose of Valor, sort of going, going back to that idea of the third theme that being sort of the, it, you know, in terms of like, a, you know, a Wagnerian idea, like the light motif, where you're like, it's the thing that's connecting all together. It's what made it more beautiful. So I wonder even, I, I wouldn't say that Nienna's, um before it would have been Discord, or maybe even she wasn't singing, but that might have been her great aria at mm-hmm. that point. Like that might have been her moment to shine and realizing where her place was within that song, mm-hmm. and then enacting that out as a Valar later on. Or maybe that was the part of the song that she was most drawn to and paid most attention to it <coughs> in her heart, but taking that on when she went into the world, into a physical being. Nice. Sophia? I have two points. My first point is that I really like how Nienna is, um, like the language is really interesting because she comes across as such a force of nature. Um, and right, like the only thing that she really actively does is mourns. And so, whereas it's left ambiguous whether she does things that cause changes in other people or whether it is simply like her presence and listening to her mourn that, right? Those who hearken to her learn pity and endurance and hope. Um, she brings strength to the spirit and turns sorrow to wisdom. There's this like elemental aspect to what she does where it's ambiguous whether she's actively doing something or whether it is just like her mere presence that causes these things. So that's interesting. Um, my other point is that my theory about Nienna in relation to the song is that like, um, like, Nienna is all about reconciling the bad things that are happening and <coughs> with something hopeful. So 
based on that purpose, I feel like Nienna's purpose, like, like the, if Nienna was playing music, like it would be something that tried to mediate between Melkor's music and the main theme, or like something that, when played with Melkor's music, kind of took the sting out of it, as opposed to a lot of the other Valar who you would imagine playing something in direct opposition to Melkor. Like she's taking what Melkor is creating and trying to turn it into something that still has value. And I think that's her purpose. It's also an interesting counterpoint to Melkor because like all of the other Valar are opposing Melkor directly and Melkor is this corrupting figure who like takes things that other people have made and then breaks them. But like Nienna is trying to take that brokenness and still make something out of it, which is super cool. Ryan, we got to... Okay. Um, oh, man. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, <laughs> I, um, I really liked what you had said about Yen being a Mary figure. Mm. Um, I think that was probably pretty prevalent in Tolkien's mind. Um, um, and then talking about what was Yen like when she was with the Ainur, um, Two things came to mind. One thing you had said, Alex, about um, Nienna and Melkor playing similar similar music. Um, there's a very, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I am saying there's a very big difference, speaking as a musician, between a discordant note and then a minor chord. Um, minors, that's like this epic, sad, beautiful music. Um, they, they work. They don't sound like they're ruining anything. It just sounds so gorgeous. Um, but then Discord, it's, it's something very different. It's like, off on the squeaky violin note. Um, so that struck me. And then talking about when she was created and all this, um, it also struck me that we're dealing with eternity here. Um, time hasn't yet come into play until um, the Ainur come to Earth as the Valar. Um, so the three themes, like, yes, true, but it's working with this weird timelessness, timelessness thing. What's first, what's last, who knows? Uh, okay, uh, I want to get on to Melkor. Oh, so <laughs> okay, Melkor. Um, there's some really interesting descriptions. I know we got into a bit last week about, okay, Melkor, like, is it just, uh, you know, if we heard from Melkor's perspective, would it be different? And, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but the language here is very important, right? Um, in the powers and knowledge of all the other Valar, he had part, but he turned them to evil purposes and squandered his strength in violence and tyranny. For he coveted Arda and all that was in it, desiring the kingship of Manwe and dominion over the realms of his peers. And then this is such a great paragraph. From splendor he fell through arrogance to contempt for all things save himself. A spirit wasteful and pitiless, understanding he turned to subtlety in perverting to his own will all that he would use until he became a liar without shame. He began with the desire of life, but when he could not possess it for himself alone, he descended through fire and wrath into a great burning, down into darkness, 
and darkness he used most in his evil works upon Arthur and filled it with fear for all living things. So there's a direction here, obviously. Uh, he's going down. Now there's a whole bunch of questions around that hierarchy and stuff that would make a fair pass. But in this picture, anyway, like you would definitely have a sense that he is this isn't a, a neutral sort of position. I think it sort of drives home the um, like the the thought that yeah, Melkor, you know, like he powers of knowledge of all the other Valar, he had parts, so he like he was super powerful. Um, and then he just squandered it in violence and tyranny. So he you know, like he wasn't, you know, carefully stewarded in what she had. He was um, he's like, No, I want more than this. Um, he's yeah, so in that, that's, I feel like that sort of like urge to dominion is where that, um, that evilness or that, that, that seed sort of lies. And then everything spreading from that um, just sort of leads him further and further down the path of like being a jerk. <laughs> yeah, Corinne? I think it's really interesting with that language how the concept of like the light light dark dichotomy doesn't actually come into it until it's Melkor himself filling darkness with fear. Like there isn't anything inherently wrong with an absence of light, but the fact that he's gone and he's twisted that, and that's this seems to be where you get that idea of light versus dark, I and mean, he's sort of the first person to to poison it in that way. Which I'm sure we'll see lots of later on. So we are Eleanor? We had to go for idea. I think in most kind of like mythology, and even just like when you think of darkness, darkness is really more about the absence of light. So you can almost see it as like there was this blankness that was darkness, and then Melkor put what he wanted into it, and then kind of made it into his own thing. Well, and this is the thing. It'll be interesting to see if anyone takes a tell of writing this whole story. I will do from Melko's perspective. I am in too. You and Jesse, right? Because there is a. Okay, so again, not to get political. So, so politically or, or currently, right, there is this the issue that's come up out of the States about the moral equivalency of two sides of America, right? And, uh, you know, Trump saying, oh, both sides are at fault, right? And there's a resistance. There's a resistance to that. Right? And I think that to say that, oh, if we heard it from Melkor's perspective, you know, he's not going to be that, he's not going to be the bad guy. It's only the bad guy because this is the way the Valar have painted him, or this is the way the elves have painted him. Well, every it, time it, you're it, on their own story. Right, but it, that, that only works if we didn't have the actions of Morgoth later on, right? Which you can't simply dismiss as, oh, he was just misunderstood. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it'd be interesting, I mean, or maybe I'm wrong, maybe this is something to debate, which I'd be happy to do so, right, or discuss. But um, but certainly from here, this language is very much arrogance, contempt, liar, um, dominance, right, squandering, falling, right? Uh, yeah, Sophia? I think the other part of that that's super important is that they sing this song, Melkor tries to ruin it, and then um, Iluvatar goes, like, look at what you've made. So there's that there's that sense of responsibility and look at what you have done. 
And again, because of that, because he's consistently trying to break things that other people have made, like you can, the evil of that is seen more clearly in the later events of the Silmarillion than it is in the earlier events, because in the later events of the Silmarillion, it's personal. It is deeply personal. Like, um, there's the, um, like, there's the incest suicide, spoiler alert, of Turin and Neodor. And there's, like, you know, the evil done by the elves and all of the different wars and, like, the war in which Turin dies and then what that does to Morwen and what that does to Turin and then, like, Baron and Luthien. And, well, and, and his creepy desire for rape. Yeah, yeah. Right? And like, the, like, only time Tolkien yeah. ever gets rapey. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm. <laughs> okay, one of the only times. It is rare. It is very it's rare. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, there's also, like, yeah. Wormtongue and Eowyn, so, like, anyway. Okay. And, um, I feel like the, I wish everyone had read the Athabeth, Finrod, uh, uh, Andros, yeah. but, like, it's the ending good. of that is yeah. one of the best parts, because yeah. it suddenly becomes this, like, deeply personal story, where, like, Andreth was a mortal woman, um, who is afraid of death, and, but she loved an elf, and he died in battle. But like decided not to be with her before that because, um, or whatever it was reasons. like, yeah, because reasons. <laughs> um, and then like at the end, Finrod is like, he's like Finrod directly says that like her elf lover is going off to fight Morgoth directly, do battle against Morgoth because he's done this hurt to Andreth. And like it's super amazing. I love that debate. Really good. It's Would so recommend. Beautiful. But yeah, because like, it does that. It's so abstract and so long term. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Which I feel like is the Silmarillion. Like right. it's so abstract yeah. until you have all of these personal stories, and you're like, right. yes, that is the harm of Melkor. Like there is right. direct harm here. So. Yeah. Yeah. Bit of fangirling there. Yeah, I was just want to go off what you said earlier about how Melkor's like. He's the embodiment of like uh, like all these things like dominion and wanting kingship, but he's all like it. But um, other than like what I've said, he's also there's a lot of things that I haven't said about him, but that he is like he's like temptation where he tries to get Omo to be on his side. There's lots of others I'm sure that I just don't remember, but he's like the just it's a true embodiment of evil in every way, like every step of the way. There's just something a little more, even if it's unsaid, like specifically like oh he's tempt he's tempting, he's trying to like take over. There's little things that, like, just words that, like, just sides to kind of show. Yeah. Yeah, I think. I've always been very just fascinated by the whole kind of uh, Malcor dynamic of, of along with sort of the Valar and Eru, because, um, like, when, you know, you just read, like, Malcor, you know, he had a part of all the other Valar sort of within himself, and, you know, it, it said he was once the greatest of, of the Ainur. Um, and in some ways, you can say he's almost because the Ainur themselves are the offspring of the Lutjar stock, we could say that Melkor is sort of like a miniature version of Eru because, like, you know, they're sort of, they both kind of have part of all of that within themselves. So I think that, yes, like his later actions do, some of them are really, really twisted. They do condemn him. You know, he does become very much like the Dark Lord, but I think in the very beginning, 
his sort of only crime was that he desired to create things for himself, and because Illuminar was sort of the only one who kind of had the dominion to create uh, things for himself, or like just create life and such, I think that sort of was the only crime, because that Melkor, Melkor's desire was a reflection of Illuminar's desire, and that set the two apart, which then set up a chain of events that sort of led to Melkor eventually sort of damning himself through his actions throughout the history of Middle Earth. I don't think the crime is that he wanted to create something for himself. Because Alvin does that too, as we'll see. Right? So it seems pretty clear that the crime always is dominance. Right? That's where he goes astray. Right? Uh, I don't think the crime is desire, to desire something. That's not an issue. Or even here, it's an issue Right? He began with the desire of life. There's nothing wrong with desiring, right? There's nothing wrong with, with, with wanting stuff. There's nothing wrong with even going off on your own. There's nothing wrong in principle with being alone because Ulo is only in this alone. Right? His crime is right, arrogance, contempt, he's pitiless. You know what I mean? Like that's where that's the difference between Melkor and the other Valar, right? And that's very I think it's very important to remember. That so that we don't get, in fact, a little bit confused about, oh, you know, he was just doing what everyone else was doing. Well, you know, uh, there is a difference, I think. Uh, Sarah. I think really what makes it most obvious is actually the things that Melkor lacks compared to the other Valar and compared to Luthar. Um, like things that we never see Melkor having is joy in mm -hmm. creation. Um, we never see him sharing any weight of like what he wants to create. He doesn't want to um, he doesn't want to share in the glory of what he's creating. Um, so all of his creative powers is solitary and even Lubitar, right? Lubitar got the master plan, um, but he delights in sharing it with all the Valar and in having them um, form it for him. Um, and so Melkor lacks those like essential um, he lacks like a love of the creation. And so all of those things that make creation and then a creative process worthwhile, right? Like the ability to share in creative processes with other people and the ability to delight in the things that you're creating um, and to make something beautiful. And Melkor doesn't have anything that makes creation worthwhile um, because he's making something to be stepped on, not something to be delighted in. Corinne? Um, I think also a huge difference with Melkor is he's he's not in any way collaborative. Like Umo is on his own and Yen are on their own, but they they still share ideas and gifts between them. You know, it's not like at the beginning of the song that Melkor is like, okay guys, I know like you've kind of got this idea and I've kind of got this idea. Let's do this really cool thing at this time. And it's like, yeah, that's a really great idea. It was sort of like this self-imposed idea upon it and people be like, I don't know what's happening. I thought we all had a plan. This is really distressing. I'm just not going to do anything. I don't know what, what's happening anymore. Seeing enough rehearsals where that happens. <laughs> 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 descends into madness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is what he's doing. But, in, and then afterwards where, you know, Umo and Manwe are working together and they're like, oh, the water cycle. Let's do that sort of thing, and then 
But I was like, damn it, we made something great. How can I wreck it now? It's never like, hey, I have this really cool thing I could do and let's work on There's just absolutely nothing collaborative on it. It's if I didn't come up with it all on my own, I need to break it. Yeah, he's probably really ticked off at snow, actually. Yeah. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Yes. He's the guy, kind of guy that, like, the moment September hits, he's, like, wrapping himself in his scarves and sweaters. Yeah. yeah. Great. Great. Well. I like that this is kind of defined all sort of arrogance, contempt, wastefulness, um, you know, he's pitiless, he's perverting things, and then finally, he became a liar without shame, and that's kind of the last one. Um, I think it's interesting, not to, um, I guess, because it's all based on this song, or this, you know, almost, like, vocal kind of um, creation of the world, so by the time you become a liar without shame, to me, that's not just he's trying to sing his own tunes into the song anymore. He knows he's corrupting the song, he's intentionally doing this. And I think at that point, if you're insulting world where, where voice and speaking is so important, I think um, that more than anything, he points out that he's kind of um, unredeemable. <coughs> uh, Brian. Um, two things. First, I like the fact that there's a timeline in Melkor's descent. Like, he's gradually getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and there seems to be no bottom. And we were talking earlier about um, maybe at the beginning you could make a case for him just being misunderstood, but by the end, no, not a, not a chance. Like, he's just bottomless pit. And then Sauron is the same way, and it says that explicitly, which is really cool. Um, and then the second thing was, I like the imagery of fire. In the description of yeah. the because in the in the Valar, there's no description of fire. There's someone in charge of water. There's someone in charge of air and light and the earth, but nothing about fire. Melkor has fire. Well, Eru has like the flame and perishable. That's what yeah. the yeah. counterpoints are all like. Yeah, this is really I think, yeah, very different kind of fire. I'm just gonna call them alternate way out. So Joseph, uh, what I find really interesting about all this discussion is there seems to be some sort of implicit economy between the Vala, Valar and Iluvatar. And what typifies Melkor and what typifies his fall is the loss of this economy. He this like there's something that Iluvatar gave to the Vala that allows them to subcreate, right? And Melkor's fall isn't the fact that he's like changing state or being arrogant, it's the fact that he loses this economy. He doesn't just lose it, he squanders it. He squandered it. Well even it says like he squandered it, but he became wasteful. Right. Right? That's right. Like the first yeah, thing. Yeah, right. But yeah, like even when we're talking, we're still there's like this implicit idea of loss that kind of underscores all of Melkor's actions, right? The reason he's unable to uh, like subcreate, the reason he has to pervert and lie, because lie is just a perversion of language in a way, is that he lacks this. He, he lost the ability to subcreate his fault. Like, it's the big sort of motive force for him after this, right? He lacks something that he's trying to fill this hole that he's completely unable to fill because he made that decision. Nice. Uh, Sophia, what you have? Uh, no, I'm good. You can. Okay, then I think Elor. I think we're on the song about kind of like got covered, but I kind of saw the point how much I love what Brian said because I, I totally agree. I, think, I don't think it's crime creation, I think it was kind of trying to overwhelm everything. When they talk about the music, he doesn't just like want his own guitar solo, he wants his music to be loud. He wants it to right. overwhelm everything. Um, right. And I think that, yeah, that was 
And I think you can actually see this as well in Christian mythology. I'm not that well versed in it, but I get the feeling for a lot of the, the problems that people have isn't so much like going off on their own. It's this pride of, I know better, I can be better. I should get my own thing and overwhelm everyone else. But I think that's more what I'm sure. So I really have to say. He's the guy during Daddy Boy that's playing Don't Cry for the Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like, dude. <laughs> Nick is gone, which is a shame, but to the theoretical concept of Nick, I also think Ariel's um, point applies greatly. Um, Ariel's point about like, the fact that Melkor already had a lot of power and he wanted more, like, there is no way in which we can read Melkor as an underdog. Right. Yeah, like, that's a great point. Which is very significant yeah. here, because that's when you tend yeah. to like sympathize with someone, is you're right. like, oh, everyone's ganging up on him. It's like, no. Like, yeah. Melkor mm-hmm. always had power. The problem is that he's trying to drown out everybody else's power. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, like, ruin know. everything they're trying to do. Yeah, I think that also really hits on kind of this trope in most literature, which is we don't sympathize with people who have power and want more. Like, just throwing out another fantasy series, like Game of Thrones, like, why is Jameera such a likable character? It's because she has more power and wants more. And we don't, you know, dislike her for wanting more power because she seems none. So I think, you know, it would be a very different scenario where, like, a character like Cersei already has a shit ton of power and wants more and we pay for it. And it, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a trope you see in literature a lot that when someone has a lot and they want even more, it's very unlikable. Wow. Um, yeah, I, and I do have I do have no, a little note in my uh, in the margin here on this page about Melkor's fall that you could you can almost have the same paragraph for Sauron, for Saruman, and even for Gollum. This seems to be a, a, a theme for Tolkien's uh, enemies, right? Well, um, Gollum he starts out as a liar, but that shit. Yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. Gollum does start out with some pigeons, I suppose. Yeah, okay. Well, boy, we didn't even do the Maiar, so we didn't get to talk about Melian, but we'll have plenty of her. And <laughs> maybe the whole thing about Mosse is so interesting. Maybe when we do Owlay, we'll come back to Mosse, because that's kind of similar. And no, we didn't get to talk about Mantle, so he's so interesting, too. But, okay. <laughs> so I'm sure he'll come back. He'll, he'll be coming back, too, so we'll get that. Well, maybe we should have like maybe we should make like a forum where people who didn't get to talk about what they wanted to can like post little blurbs on what they're thinking about. You know, we had a Reddit. I don't even know if that's still. We have a post as well. Yeah, yeah, we used to have our Reddit. I would love to hear Yeah, so maybe we should post that. I don't know when's the last time anyone wrote on that. Robert, you just said something. Three years ago. Three years ago. Does anybody like Reddit though? Maybe if we advertise it more heavily, be like, hey, we could. Yeah, that's all it takes. Someone just has to start a thread and we'll see where it goes. But yeah, we do have one, and that was why. Because we could run into this thing of lots of stuff to talk about that we don't have time for. So (laughs) I don't know if our marketing people. Two hours was there is a there is a link on the website. If you click the little okay. the little Reddit guy. Okay. Oh, wow. So maybe the next <laughs> maybe the uh, maybe the next email we yeah. might want to make a note about. Maybe. Or might be last lines U of A or, or the last lines U of A. <laughs> I don't remember. I just clicked on the little Reddit guy on the website. It took me there. <laughs> so still yeah. So anyway yeah by all means uh, you know. Fire one up, and, and uh, I don't know how that works if we can make force everybody to get credit notifications or not, but when 
I mean, if they choose to, they can. Yeah. So, okay, so again, I'm sorry, I, I don't have the schedule for next week, but my guess is that we're reading chapter one and two of the Quintus of Hopefully, because I gave challenges on Ellie right. and Yovana. Yeah, but my guess, I think that would make sense, because they're both, they're neither one of them are really wrong. So, but I will, yeah. No one's voice, no spaces. Just last line to you, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. By all means, you know, keep the conversation going. Throw stuff up there. Go down tangents. Yep, go on tangents. Fan fiction all the way on Reddit, no problem. Mundo's <laughs> <laughs> actually so cool. <laughs> what if Mumo and Alberti? But no, that should also be a good oh place to gosh. put, like, you know, like, uh, stands with the art, and people can discuss what they like about it. Right. Like, yeah. Yep. That's cool. All right. Thanks, everybody.